This is Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. Three friends. Three former TV reporters. And one bottle of wine. Delving into whatever interests us. News, not news. What affects our lives? Because it's probably affecting yours too. I'm Lynn Melling. And I'm Julie Barkey. And now on with the pod. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Three Women and a Bottle of Wine. Two women for this podcast. I'm Kim Inslee. And I'm Lynn Melling. Yes, we're missing Julie Barkey this evening. Unfortunately, Julie, we love you. She's here in spirit. Um, so today we're talking about one of my favorite places on the face of the earth, Lake Superior. Am I right, Kim? It is one of your favorite. <sighs> like Lynn is Obsessed. there all the time. Summer, she's just gone. Yeah. Obsessed. Um, and in <laughs> fact, my husband, our video production crew and I are working on a film documentary about it. It's called Freshwater. I'm going to do a shameless plug, which I'm not really good at doing. Go ahead, Lynn. This makes just, me nervous, but I'm just go going ahead. to do it anyway. I'm forcing myself. Um, so it's going to premiere February 19th at the North Shore Theater in Duluth. It's open to the public. Um, very excited about that. And today we have the pleasure of talking to one of the scientists that we interviewed for the documentary, Dr. Cody Sheik. Yes, he's with Hello. us. And- <laughs> Hello. I'm going to welcome Hello, you again because I, I want to give your resume here. So Cody's a microbiologist right. at the University of Minnesota's Duluth Swenson College of Science and Engineering. And he is uh, doing work at the Large Lakes Observatory. And that is where scientists study Lake Superior. So Cody, yes, welcome. We're so glad that you could make it here with us today. Thank you. I'm so grateful to, to be here. And uh, it's a pleasure for me. Thank you for letting me ask you more questions, Cody, because I couldn't, <laughs> I just had so many more after we talked the first time, like, oh, you're just so full it, of information. It was so pleasant. Um, it was just, it felt like a really, just like a normal conversation. And it was, it was just really great for me. Um, wasn't like, you know, like, Argh. Oh, and that's um, how Lynn normally <laughs> is too. So I'm glad. <laughs> okay. So I'm kind of the odd, always on TV, right? I'm the odd person out, Cody. So you have to tell me and our listeners what, what is the Large Lakes Observatory? What what goes on there? Yeah, well, it's a collective of scientists. Uh, we we have all different backgrounds, um, but we all have come from um, sort of like a large marine style uh, research background. So thinking about oceans, and if you've ever been on Lake Superior or on the shores and and kind of just gazed out, it is gigantic. And <laughs> aside for like thinking about the, over the apostles, if you kind of like you slant your gaze over it a little bit. It, you know, it, it kind of looks like an ocean, um, but inland. And so a lot of us take these techniques and backgrounds in marine biology and physics and chemistry, geology, and apply it to thinking about how large lakes um, operate. We sit around, we, we chat about physics and waves, and then... Um, Sciencey stuff. Sciencey stuff. <laughs> our, our, one of our professors that's a physicist literally just published a paper on little tiny uh, plankton that move up and down in the water column. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's kind of like a bizarre sort of uh, collection of people, but um, it really works. Um, and so we, we're, that's what we do. We just kind of think about how stuff happens in the lakes. <laughs> and it's so important because I found this to be fascinating. So, okay, Lake Superior contains 10% of the earth's fresh water, mm-hmm. which I mean, like, when you think about it, I mean, that's an incredible natural resource right in our backyard, 10% of -hmm. Earth's fresh water. But there is so much that we don't know about Lake Superior. Like it's still a very much largely unexplored Mm -hmm. body of water. Can you talk about that? And I I just, I think some people probably think, oh, we've got that whole thing figured out, that whole Lake Superior thing. We know everything about it, but that's not true at all. 
No, it's not. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of times we take it for granted, right? It's this beautiful, clear lake. You can see the bottom of the water, like if you're around the shoreline. Um, and, you know, it's cold, it's always crisp, it's, you know, and it takes your breath away whenever you see it. Um, but it's also one of the lakes that's been changing globally um, and temperature-wise um, over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. It's one of the fastest changing lakes and um, we're losing ice. We're gaining temperature every year. Now we're starting to see algal blooms, which haven't been a problem. Um, they've popped up here and there um, over the years, um, but they're usually just like, it's it's not really a thing. And so, yeah, we there's so much that we have to learn and, and we're trying, <laughs> um, but in my field um especially like we haven't had the tools until very recently to actually study microorganisms um at a very broad scale and so when i when i think about broad scale i mean the entire lake so uh -huh. top to bottom all the way across and so now we we have these sampling techniques and stuff that allows us to actually go out and look at these things and and, and see how they change over time and so with that sort of like um, resolution that we're getting it's like amazing every time we go into a data set we're finding something brand new um, and it makes me really excited whenever you know new data or new samples are going to roll into the lab mm -hmm. um, and I think that's actually true for everybody at the LLO when we start thinking about this sort of stuff is that um, you know you see a piece of like say the physics like with Jay Austin like he's talking about these wave dynamics in the lake and sesh and it's been really fun uh, for me the last, you know, four or five years being there and just like, you know, just kind of soaking stuff in just like sure, as people talk, sure. right? Um, Let me rewind a little bit too. You alluded to it uh, when you mentioned the ocean and Lynn alluded to it when she mentioned 10% of the world's, mm -hmm. you know, water. What, I moved here from the West Coast. So I grew up in Oregon. The Pacific Ocean is is the thing huge. that draws me. Yep. Um and when I moved here, people were like, oh, go up to Lake Superior. It's just like the ocean. I thought, no, it's really not. Um, what makes the Great Lakes different from an ocean? What makes them special? What makes them important to the world at large, mm -hmm. different from the ocean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the main one is salt. And, you know, the having salt versus no salt, it allows life to kind of bloom and develop and evolve differently. Um, and so you have these marine organisms and marine systems, they behave just, they're just different organisms. Like, so they basically have the same sort of components. They have organisms that are taking in light, photosynthesizing, making carbon and other things eat it. Same thing happens in Lake Superior. Uh, it's just that there's different players happening. And uh, what makes the Great Lakes special is that it's freshwater, right? And it's a huge source of freshwater, which means as climates are changing, we're becoming drier, different precipitation patterns are happening across the United States, you know, our sources of fresh water are, are, are invaluable. And being able to protect those um, where we can drink out of them, use them for public facilities like fishing. You know, it's, it's weird to think about fishing being a, a big public utility, but it, it draws people to the northern region um, and it, it helps our economy up here um, in this area. And that in turn helps drive like funds for protecting it as well, right? If there's people coming here, we want to protect this sort of thing. And so state dollars roll in as well to help us like manage these systems. 
Um, but in the bigger context of things, uh, when we think about fresh water, most of it is locked in ice right now. If we think about up in Greenland or say down in Antarctica, these glaciers are our predominant source of water. Fresh water in a surface is locked away in these gigantic lakes. And Lake Superior is huge. Uh, it's 10%. Um, and so if you take all the other Great Lakes, so um, Erie and Ontario, here on Michigan, and just like empty out like Lake Superior, you can pour all of those into Lake Superior and still have room, I think, for Lake Erie, right? And so it's like this weird sort of like thing where you're like, that can't happen, right? It's just water. <laughs> Um, but then the crazy things to think about is lakes like Baikal, which is in, in Russia, is actually 20% of the world's fresh water. And so you can basically take Lake Superior and fit it in twice in these large lakes. And, and so like thinking about these isolated regions and, and fresh water and where they're at is, is it's really important as we start to move forward, um, you know, not just for like my generation, but also, you know, our, our kids' generation and you know, how we start thinking about managing these things now will have downstream impacts, you know, 20, 30, 40 years um, and stuff that we might now you never see. Um, Our survival uh, depends on the health of those lakes. It does. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, in the Midwest, we have like the Ogallala Aquifer, which is this huge aquifer that feeds like millions of people every year because of the waters that are drawn up and gone to, to agriculture. And to think that that's drying up because recharge events are slowing and it's it's these freshwater sources are going to be you know huge uh in, in the coming years so that's one reason to kind of think about or actually that, was, that wasn't even one reason i was like <laughs> multiple reasons all blended together it's okay just hit it with hit us with it yeah you know but, but i think yeah to go back to your point cody it is something we take for granted and i think so many of us think, oh, fresh water, it's going to be here forever. And but, but we are seeing, you know, we, we hear about, um, you know, the Hoover Dam, Hoover Dam. Lake Maine. Up. Yeah. And it's so, and it's really becoming real now. I think people think about climate change and, and this, this happening 10, 15, hundred years from now, but it's actually, we're seeing it happen now. Can you just talk about what the reality of now and, and what you're seeing in Lake Superior? You know, I think with um, I think the biggest one when I think about impacts is that you know the this these cyanobacteria that we've been studying um, are starting to bloom more frequently now, and it, it's been happening in these weird places like the Apostle Islands, which are this beautiful attraction for many people. A lot of people live out there because of the remoteness and the ruggedness of it. Um, they come there for their cabins in the summertime um, and to have things blooming over there. It's really sort of weird. Um, and I can't help but think of it as, as a canary in the coal mine sort of situation where you can't really, we're still trying to understand why they're doing this. But if you look at it and point it on a map and said, where would I see blooms happening? My dollar would not be on the Apostle Islands uh, in, the, in, in that region just because there's not enough. There's no agriculture inputs. There's no, there's not like a huge population center there. Um, you know, I would say Duluth or up in uh, Thunder Bay. Uh, that's also, also been a big area as well. And so when you see these sorts of things happening, you can't help but wonder like, you know, what's actually happening here. Um, there was a really interesting piece that came out um, 
uh, here recently, I think this last week, um, showing that lakes in just general lakes in Minnesota are losing ice every year. Um, and all, that's also because of climate change. Things are warming up in this region. And so thinking about just like uh, tourism and, and, and things like that, it's a huge uh, impact uh, if you can't keep your ice hut on the, on the lake long enough to actually go out there and enjoy it you're not going to want to come here anymore. Um, but that aside, you know, I think the increasing temperatures in Lake Superior, um, these algal blooms, if we look at the chemistry of the lake, it's increasing the in nitrogen. So we keep accumulating nitrate, which is something that you would feed your lawn usually. Um, it's a really good fertilizer. Um, and so this thing has been, you know, nitrate's been increasing probably since like 1900 um, and we've accumulated a lot. Um, one of the graphics, I did this math on the, on the back of a napkin one day at, at work because I finally dawned on me how much nitrogen was coming into the system. And so if we accumulate all the nitrogen that we've gained in Lake Superior over the last you say, 100 years or so, it's enough to actually like count for about 1.5 million African elephants. So I, I was trying to figure out like, an, uh, something that was big and like doing mass equivalents. And so I was like, I've seen an African elephant. They're huge, right? You know, I could visualize this in my head. And so I was like, oh, how, how many elephants would this be? And it's like 1.5 million elephants is the mass of this nitrate that's accumulated in, in Lake Superior, which is insane to think about. Um, and, and so the scale of this lake is, it's different from like your backyard pond where it's the volume is much more constrained. And, you know, you look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, things are changing. It's fine. But then when you put it on this massive scale and start realizing the processes that have to happen to see this entire lake change, that's when it becomes real scary. And it's not it's almost like kind of a locomotive that's out of control. Right. It's kind of like right on the cusp. Like the brakes may be there, but they may fail at the next pass. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're at, where we're still kind of holding on, trying to wait and see is, is, are we doomed for failure or is this thing? It's hard here, right? I feel mm -hmm. like that people can still ignore climate change because you're measuring it with instruments. You know, we're seeing, like you pointed out, less ice. We're noticing the winters are a little bit different. But when I go to Oregon and I go to the West mm -hmm. Coast, I see large swaths of timber dead. I oh, yeah. see fires that continually burn throughout the summer and coat the entire mm -hmm. coast with smoke. I don't recognize my hometown anymore because the landscape looks completely different. It is a different place and it smacks you in the face and it's frightening. What is it going to take for people here to start caring about these changes and understand that we have to make some changes if yeah. we're going to stop the locomotive train from running away. You know, that's a very good question. I don't, I don't really know. I hit them where, you know, fishermen, I don't, <laughs> and fisher people, I should, I should say. Well, the economy, um, sure, right? yeah. I think the economy and like, if they're going out and not being able to catch, you know, walleye uh, that is keeping size anymore, and if they're not able to go out and actually be on the lakes anymore, no, I think that would be a big wake up call. Um, but at the same time, we have the warning signs that are there, right? It's like, 
you know, if you talk to like these old timers, sometimes they're like, well, you know, we used to have, you know, snow by the, you know, October 2nd or something like that. But like, I think those are these long-term um, things that have been passed down from generation to generation that have once held true. And I think if you actually started realizing that these idioms that we've been saying probably don't hold true anymore, maybe there's something there that you could learn from. Um, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma and you know, there it's like climate change doesn't happen. Like it's just hot all the time anyway. Um, but if you go back to the old farmers, um, it's the same sort of way. You go down the co-op and, and you're talking to them and they're like, yeah, we used to have blizzards that would, you know, stack snow up 15 feet tall. And I can't remember ever seeing a snowfall that big in Oklahoma um, in my entire life. And so, you know, and like, you know, being able to like raise corn without having to irrigate and, and all these like, just like little subtle things. And then be like, yep, well, that's just life these days. And then they just kind of pass it on. But I think reflecting on it and actually understanding, you know, that this is change. What we're seeing is something that's different than the state that was before. I think that's huge. But I think a lot of people have a hard time thinking about those sorts of things when we are faced with right now a pandemic. Um, you know, we have inflation, we have the economy, we have to raise our kids. You know, we're caught up in the moment. And it, I think sometimes it's hard to step back and, and realize sort of the greater good of what's happening. And so, you know, I, I think it... it I think it's an existential sort of thing sometimes trying to balance this stuff. And I, I think a lot of people just don't have the time to think about that. I, and I don't even think, I don't even think it's sometimes a science. I think it's just that we were so caught up in this sort of everyday sort of thing that it's hard to think about these sorts of things. And then also feel like you can do something about it. Right. It's sure. like, well, yeah. this is so big. I can't it's solve it. myself in my house. Mm -hmm. my kids. How do how can I even like start right? And I think that's a big one for a lot of people. It's like I don't even know how to start. You know, maybe I recycle. I was on your site, um, the Large Lakes Observatory site, and there was an article about you know uh, erosion along the shoreline because the ice isn't there to keep the waves down during the winter, and so the shoreline's being eroded, and people's property and homes could mm -hmm. fall into the lake. Um, so what are the larger scale implications if things continue as they are? Well, I think money is the biggest one. It's like we have to put more money into infrastructure, right? So in Duluth, we basically rebuilt the entire seawall area and it costs millions of dollars to do this. Um, I just saw on Twitter, Lake Michigan is worried about this as well. They're having infrastructure that's built being torn down by these storms that are being become more frequent, more intense. Uh, and so they're at this like sort of like crisis about, you know, we actually rebuild this or do we just let nature take its course and just see what happens? Um, and I, I think, um, I think that's true for a lot of regions. Um, like any sort of coastal area has this sort of thing. It was like, you know, where do we build? Like everybody wants to have a beautiful house on the water, but is that actually something that we need to have or is it something that we can protect? And I think we saw with, with Duluth was that we have this like ice would form and then break apart and then just smash the living shit out of everything. Uh, and sorry, my, my, my language. It's there. okay. It's a yep. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it was, yeah, it was, 
beautiful to watch just in general because we went down and like saw those things happening in real time and you're just like this is insane to see you know 15 foot waves sometimes coming in and mm. just matching these gigantic bus size pieces of ice against the shoreline and you're like this is, wow. this is crazy you know and this is outside of our realm right we can't it's hard to engineer this sort of stuff to last and hard to think about controlling these sorts of dynamics in the lake when it's mother nature climate's going to happen it's going to be moving off these bigger patterns that we kind of understand um but yeah I, I, it's it's frustrating to see as a researcher um uh, and i don't know as a, as a human you, you get your stuff taken away as well but we also have to put money back in through your taxes and other stuff to rebuild this 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 infrastructure so i i don't know i'm at a crossroads with it like, i don't know what to actually do um just because I, I study these microorganisms like oh, right well i i think see, then, do you ever do you ever want like because i'm sure there's people who come to you and say how do we stop climate change and you're just like i'm just a scientist studying microorganisms and it's yeah. kind of feel like i mean you've because yeah, I, I know i asked you that earlier like in the when i was interviewing you for the the documentary it's like well so tell me cody chic how do we solve this problem and you're just like <laughs> there's tons of people that are more smarter than i am <laughs> anyway, uh, that are smarter than I am, uh, thinking about this sort of stuff and like carbon capture mechanisms, right? And using organisms to take CO2 from the environment um, in big bioreactors that we just feed um, can have pretty drastic implications where we are taking this biomass and then we can convert it into something useful like biofuel or something like that. Um, and there's a lot of research that has shown that it can work. Um, it's it's more like federal dollars to actually get it off the ground right and the downside is that some of these programs are very partisan and you know taking money away from xy project in some state to put it into another state where this is actually feasible um, because of sunlight or things like that it kind of gets thrown under the rug sometimes um you know moving to renewables just in general would be you know beautiful to see but these microorganisms have been doing this stuff for three and a half billion years. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they changed the way the planet functions uh, two billion years ago uh, when oxygen started evolving from, you know, their metabolisms. And, you know, these organisms are still living in, in all of our waters, <laughs> no matter where we go, in cyanobacteria. And so they're still doing their thing. It's just sometimes we have to nurture them along and start thinking about, you know, what does it mean when, you know, these organisms are unhealthy or the system mm -hmm. is unhealthy, what's the counterbalance that happens, you know? Yeah. The little microorganisms yeah. are pretty, ex pretty important. Um, so rather than yeah. asking you to solve climate change, <laughs> which is pretty unfair, <laughs> I apologize. No, no, no. Oh no, Kim, I asked the same question. No, I, I think everybody probably asked you that question, Cody, you like that. Well, let me, let me turn it around then and, and just say, you know, from from your perspective um, because you're on the lake frequently you're mm -hmm. studying these microorganisms and when they're unhealthy and not producing oxygen that's bad what is the health of lake superior right now i don't i maybe has a, a slight fever i think i don't, I don't know i think um I've, I've actually been thinking about that for a long time so because we haven't started studying these things more routinely like the lake mm -hmm. um we don't really have a fingerprint of what it looks like. Like, I can't tell you what a normal Lake Superior should look like. Sure. I'd have to have a time machine essentially to go back 
before we started moving in to say, this is what we started with. Um, and, and this is where we're at now. But I, I do think there are subtle clues to this of what's happening. And we're trying to elucidate some of these right now um, using sediments. And so mm -hmm. uh, basically going back in time, one centimeter at a time, um, and looking at the organisms that are left over that basically mm -hmm. get preserved in the sediment. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do is re reconstruct um, um, time-wise and compare it to what we see right now, what, what, what would be present, you know, potentially 100, 150 years ago. Huh. Um, and so we're, we're just now starting this off the ground and trying to, trying to figure this out. And we're also trying to spread this off into some of the other Great Lakes as well. Like Lake Erie has been, you know, devastated. Michigan and Huron have been devastated over the years. Um, both like just amount, amount of like people coming in and flexing all these nutrients in and, and things like that. One thing that we do know is that these lakes were probably more balanced um, by chemistry wise. So um, right now thinking about nitrogen concentration to phosphorus concentration, um, they were probably like way like 1800, um, maybe even like 1900, they're, they're much more even. And now we're like nitrogen is way up here and then phosphorus is way down here. And that has really big implications to the productivity of the system. So what organisms can live here? how much carbon they can make, how much um, biomass they can make just in general, like number of cells. And that all has big, big, big overarching implications into food webs and how many lake trout can actually grow um, and how big lake trout can get are all based on these little tiny microorganisms that are being like producing chemicals that are then also being eaten by bigger things and, being eaten by, and moving up the trophic scale. Um, we're just now starting to understand on a year to year basis, what this basal level is mm -hmm. present day. And then, um, we can start to now make predictions potentially about, okay, if this part of the food web goes away, what happens as the chain works its way up? And there's other pieces of research through modeling, um, uh, for like fish, um, population sizes and stuff like that, that are happening here at UMD, not through the large lakes observatory, but through other researchers that are in this beautiful, um, water like collection of, of researchers through like you know, people at just other people in the biology department and EPA and, um, um, oh, there's so many different local agencies and stuff, um, EPA. And so we're all starting to like think about, you know, how do these different puzzle pieces fit together? And so, you know, sometimes I'll be reading a paper about fish and just being like, oh, okay, this makes sense that, you know, they're seeing this because they've lost this organism X, right? And then that has direct implications to something that could be eaten by the stuff I like to look at. <laughs> mm. Oh, wow. Um, yeah and so i think for like lake erie you know we we know that that thing has just been um used and abused for so long that, that we just that's like the normal is that it's just it's just always awful <laughs> um, is that because then, of the population centers around it i mean what makes that lake more vulnerable it, it's more shallow so basically oh. the, the the lake is very shallow it has three different basins it has an eastern um western and a central basin and they're all different geochemically because they they all have like the little circulation patterns and so um they're kind of isolated from one another for a, a, like a, i say isolated like they they still move nutrients back and forth but it's much more slowly um and there's also so much agriculture in that area 
you have these big inputs of, of agriculture it's waste. all flowing into the lake yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly and so that's really changed things for a long time you had a lot of like industrial complexes there as well and so they were all dumping chemicals and whatever they wanted to before we started actually regulating water uh, back in the 70s and so you know the the clean water act was huge and and it's insane that people want to take it away like i am just blown away when politicians or other people are like we don't need the clean water act we don't need the clean air act and it's like nobody today realizes what actually like places look like sure. <laughs> prior to this thing happening and it's so the success of the policy yeah. is 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 endangering it now yes. huh. yeah exactly wow. and so you're like why would you ever take this away like we take for granted being able to like drink water and like mm -hmm. be not be from it and it's just like it, it blows my mind but you know i think just in general like we're we're at that threatened state like we don't, we know, I know there's a dysbiosis. So uh, a change from the normal, um, like, so like in, I was reading some stuff about like the gut microbiome. So anything changing from the normal and your gut microbes, like after you take antibiotics or something is, is referred to as a dysbiosis. I like that term. And just because of like, it doesn't really say anything about being sick or not. It just says that things are not right. It's and different. Yeah. It's I like different that. than what than what you were and so i think right now we are in this sense of dysbiosis in the lake where we don't really know what the original state was but we're in something that's changing and so I, I, and I, I whether that's good or bad left to be seen i think i'm sure my daughter will tell me here like well, i did wrong Dad. <laughs> like you should have done this better well, we're just grateful to you for being a steward of the lake. You know, I mean, without scientists like you studying this and safeguarding it, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't have this information. So um, as, a, as a huge fan of Lake Superior, I am just, I'm grateful to you for doing the work. And it gives me hope that, you know, if we don't have hope, what do we have? And yeah, hope exactly. that things are going to work out and that, you know, Lake Superior will continue yeah. to be healthy. I, th I think. I don't want to land it on like a doom and gloom sort of thing. I think, you know, <laughs> I did this a while back and I was like, oof, uh, that was a rough way to end up talk. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think ecosystems can be resilient and, you know, it's a matter of change over time and, and being okay with how these things enter, you know, move from one state to another. Right. And so when we're caught in between those two states, it, it feels weird mainly because we don't know what's going to happen. And I, I think this is probably a metaphor for life, I guess, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But you know, it, as you move from the state to state uh, and, but once you kind of get there, you start to understand like, maybe it'll be okay because you can maybe start bringing in more like other types of species and things like that. And I hate to think about bringing in other species, but like things are going to go through succession and just like going from a grassland to a mature oak stand, they go through these big important stages and the, the lake is going to go through this as well. And I think we just have to be nimble and be able to respond to that as best we can and um, try to minimize our impact while also um, taking like respect for the lake and respect for our waters just in general and not trying to lose them and further change it. And we just keep the murder hornets out. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> just keep the murder hornets out. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you how much those things scare me. I'm just, just the name. <laughs> no. <laughs>
Like those are spiders. I'm just like, I'm done. Leave it. Dr. Listeners, yeah. If you would like to meet Dr. Cody Sheik in person, are you going to be at the premiere on February 19th? Yep. I got it on my calendar and we'll find a Yay! So yes, if if there's any fan fan people out there listening who want to meet him in person, you can join us at the North Shore Theater in Duluth on February 19th. You all did such a great job. Oh, thank you. And like hearing people's life stories. I was just like, this is a, this is amazing. Like, I'm a clown. Like, I want more of them. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you for saying was, that. We, but no, so you're. Good. Um, and you, like, but you gave us the meat and potatoes to make it like, you know, educational <laughs> to take it over the finish line. So without you, we just have a bunch of fluff. So we appreciate. it. It's really good fluff. So. <laughs> well, I want to point out too that it's actually not fluff. So this again is a fundraiser for the Large Lakes Observatory at UMD and 51productions.com slash freshwater is where you can get all the information on where this is. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. And Dr. Cody Cheek, I just want to say thank you for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you very Uh much uh, for having me. It was so great. I enjoyed talking to you both. Thank you so much, Cody. See you soon. Hi, everybody. This is Kim. I just want to make sure that you get the correct address to get tickets to see Freshwater, a documentary produced by 515 Productions. Naturally, I said it wrong during the podcast, but here's what you need to know. The documentary full-length premiere is February 19th at the North Shore Theater in Duluth, Minnesota, and you can get tickets at 515productions.com backslash freshwater. Again, that's 515productions.com backslash freshwater. Three Women and a Bottle of Wine is supported by 515 Productions. 515 Productions is a video production business with base camps in Minneapolis and Des Moines, Iowa. Learn more at 515productions.com. Our logo was created by Aaliyah DeSaltz, a creativity guru offering art workshops to everyone from business executives to book clubs because we all have untapped creative potential just waiting to be unleashed. You can find her contact information on our website. You can stay up to date on our podcast by checking out our website, threewomenandabottleofwine.com. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where you'll find behind-the-scenes photos and, of course, much, much more. Be sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.